What's up, everyone? I'm Joe Pompliano, and this is The Joe Pomp Show. I hope everyone's having a great weekend so far, but I want to get right into it because we have a lot to talk about today. We're going to start things off by talking about Caitlin Clark and the Iowa women's college basketball team. Many of you have seen by now that Caitlin Clark broke the NCAA women's all-time scoring record on Thursday night. And the easiest way to explain things is that Caitlin Clark is the biggest star in all of college basketball. I don't care if we're talking about men's or women's at this point. She sells out venues all over the country. She directly contributed to the NCAA's new eight-year, $920 million media rights deal with ESPN. And more importantly, she is leaving a lasting legacy, forcing major networks to put women's college basketball on television and pushing all of women's sports forward in the process. So we'll talk about that and break down some of the numbers behind what she has contributed to the sport and the basketball program at Iowa. And then secondly, we're going to talk about some college football playoff financials. A new deal was recently announced with ESPN for the college football playoff that will pay around $1.3 billion per year. That's roughly double what they were previously getting in their deal with ESPN. And I just really want to talk the state of college football today. Everyone seems to be complaining about NIL and the transfer portal and saying college football is dead. But I'm going to give you guys some hard numbers to really dissect how popular college football is today and why I think that these media rights are only going to go up in the future, given everything that's happened in the media landscape. I think you guys are really going to enjoy this episode, but before we get into it, let's quickly hear from today's sponsor. This episode is brought to you by U.S. Bank. Winter can be a drag. Thankfully, we have sports to get us through the early part of the year. If you ask me, nothing goes together quite like food and sports, especially this time of year. I mean, we got football on, college and pro hoops, hockey. So let's just say I may be plopped down on my couch until the temperature hits the 80s again. And the U.S. Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card provides the perfect way to earn rewards. Whether you're watching your team with other super fans at a local eatery or in the comfort of your own living room. I know me personally, there's nothing better than ordering wings, sitting on my own couch, and watching sports. You can earn four times points when you dine out or have food delivered. I mean, those wings do sound pretty damn good. Plus, Earn two times points at grocery stores. Maybe you want to cook the wings yourself. And if you're willing to brave the elements, even getting to the game can be rewarding, as you'll earn two times points at gas stations and EV charging stations. So go to usbank.com slash altitude go to learn more about how you can earn 20,000 bonus points worth $200 if you spend $1,000 in the first 90 days of opening your account. Score big with the US Bank Altitude Go Visa Signature Card. Visit usbank.com slash altitude go to apply and live every day your way. Limited time offer. The creditor and issue of this card is U.S. Bank National Association, pursuant to a license from Visa USA Incorporated. Some restrictions may apply. All right, let's start with Caitlin Clark. As I mentioned in the intro, I've been saying for several months now that I think, irregardless of whether we want to talk about men's or women's, Caitlin Clark is the biggest star in college basketball today. And the easiest way to explain this is just ask a random person to name the biggest stars in men's college basketball. There's really not anyone this year. And I think that's part of the reason why she's so popular, but more so she's electrifying to watch. I mean, she's super athletic. She passes the ball. She shoots the ball from all over the court. And last night in front of 15,000 fans at a sold out arena in Iowa city, people that paid over $250 on average to attend or roughly 25 times more than it would have cost to attend the NBA's Bucks first Grizzlies game at the same time. Caitlin Clark broke the NCAA women's all time scoring record. It didn't really take that long. I turned it on on Peacock, and literally within the first 130 seconds of the game, she scored the team's first eight points, hitting a pull-up three in transition from the logo to break the record and put herself in the history books forever. 
She ended the night with 49 points, which, of course, fitting-wise, was another school record. And she now has over 3,500 points for her career, beating Kelsey Plum's previous record at the University of Washington in 13 fewer games. After the game, Caitlin Clark said, You all knew I was going to shoot a logo three for the record. Come on now. And look, this was really the perfect ending to the perfect night. I mean, Caitlin Clark has captivated audiences nationwide for years. When I talk about her being the biggest draw in basketball, it's not hyperbole. It's not me being exaggerating things or anything like that because the data backs it up. And I'll give you guys a few examples. My friends over at the ticketing platform TickPick sent me some data on this. And they said that overall, the most interesting games this year, one of them was against Northwestern. The average purchase price for a Northwestern Wildcat women's basketball home game this season. So if you look at all their games, the average purchase price was $10 on their platform. When Iowa and Caitlin Clark came to town, the average purchase price shot all the way up to $256. The same thing happened at Nebraska. The average purchase price for a ticket for a home game at Nebraska this year for women's college basketball was $8. When Caitlin Clark and Iowa came to town, it jumped up over $100. So we're literally talking about 10 to 15 times more increases when she comes to town. This is really close to what LeBron does in the NBA. They had some stats here for comparison. They said the average purchase price for an NBA regular season game this season when a team isn't playing the Lakers is $111. But the average purchase price for when a team is playing the Lakers goes all the way up to $250. So really, if you want to talk about it, she's having an even greater impact than LeBron would on the NBA. Obviously, it's not apples to apples considering we're talking about professional basketball versus collegiate basketball, and the player comparisons are not exactly the same. But you guys get the point. My favorite stat might actually be one that Iowa posted themselves. They said, by the end of this regular season, 30 of their 32 women's basketball games will have been will have been played in front of a sold-out crowd or broken a venue attendance record. So we're talking about 30 out of 32. Now, the only two that will not be played in front of a sold-out crowd or broke an attendance record at a specific venue were two games that were played more than 1,000 miles away in Florida during a tournament at a neutral site during Thanksgiving week. Right. So virtually every single game that Iowa plays is sold out. The ticket prices are obviously extremely expensive. And the draw is Caitlin Clark. I mean, Sportico produced some numbers earlier this year looking at some of the financials of the athletic department. Last year, the Iowa basketball team brought in $767,000 in ticket revenue. This year, they did $1.4 million over the last 12 months. She doubled ticket revenue. That's popular. Caitlin Clark herself has also benefited from this popularity tremendously too. If you look at her Instagram account and her Twitter account, she's got over 1.2 million followers combined. She makes seven figures annually through endorsement deals with Nike, State Farm, Gatorade, Buick, and Bose. We're talking about legit blue chip companies at this point. She also led uh, a record 9.9 million people to watch last year's national championship game against LSU. And Iowa's most recent game against Nebraska, one where many people thought she would break the all-time scoring record, averaged 1.8 million viewers on Fox. Now, the reason why 1.8 million is significant, even in the context of 9.9 million for the national championship, is because it was the network's most watched women's basketball game ever, literally of all time. Obviously, super impressive. But we all know that Caitlin Clark is impressive. We know that she's been putting up tremendous numbers when it comes to tickets. We see the videos online of hundreds of thousands of people lining up outside arenas to get in there early to watch her warm up and guarantee their seat. We know this. We get that she is extremely popular. But the real reason I want to talk about this today is because she is really pushing an entire industry forward, all of women's sports, and specifically women's college basketball. 
Now, she's not doing this alone. I mean, we could talk about LSU. They beat Iowa in the national championship last year, and they have stars like Angel Reese, too. South Carolina is currently undefeated at 24-0. And UConn, I mean, we can't understate what Gino Oriema at UConn has done over the last decade plus. There are many other people in women's college basketball that have made a difference. But Caitlin Clark herself is objectively a huge part of the sport's overall success. And if you just look at what's happened with the TV deal, over the last few weeks here. I think that's probably the greatest indicator of the success and the growth of women's college basketball in general. And I'll get to why this is so important, but let's talk about the number. So historically, for those that don't know, ESPN has had a package of media rights where they do the NCAA championships. They pay the NCAA directly for this. Their previous package included 29 championships and paid the NCAA $34 million a year. So they gave the NCAA $34 million a year for the rights, the media rights, to 29 different championships that was spread across men's and women's sports. This new deal is worth $115 million annually. So again, we're going from $34 million annually to $115 million annually. But here's the kicker. $65 million of that $115 million annually is specifically earmarked for women's college basketball. So not only is more than half of this package, which covers 40 different collegiate championships, not only is half of it being represented by one out of the 40 sports, but the women's rights alone are now worth about double what the entire previous package was worth by itself. So you guys can just see the growth in the sport in general, and nothing represents this more than media rights. We talk about this all the time. All you have to do is follow the money in sports. And what I've noticed on my side, I talk to different uh, companies, I talk to different investors, people in and around sports, private equity funds, sports owners, everyone else like that. What I've noticed over the last, we'll call it maybe 12 months, but really even it goes back a couple of years now, and it's accelerated since then, is there is a lot of capital and a lot of interest and a lot of attention flowing into women's sports. It's not just women's basketball. We've seen this with uh, soccer, with the NWSL internationally as well. We've seen this with volleyball. There's professional leagues popping up, and obviously the attendance has gone through the roof with different schools like Nebraska holding games and stadiums. But you guys can see it. I can see it. I've heard it, and I've seen it firsthand. How much money is being poured into these sports? And the most interesting part to me is that women's sports have really always had what we'll call a chicken and egg problem. Media coverage has lagged behind viewership trends ever since Title IX was signed into law in 1972. The fans, though, have been telling these TV networks they want more coverage of women's sports, as indicated by total watch time. Yet most of the world's most popular sports media entities pass up the opportunity in favor of GOAT debates. Who's the greatest of all time? Is Mahomes better? Is Brady better? Is Jordan better? Is LeBron better? During the offseason of these sports, literally, if you turn on First Take, if you turn on Get Up, if you turn on Fox, if you turn on any of these major media programs, most of the time they would rather talk about things that they know are going to get views like the Dallas Cowboys or LeBron or bigger individuals around sports than they would about women's sports or even uh, smaller men's sports in America. I mean, if you look at the MLS and Lionel Messi, that was the biggest news in American sports last year. And it wasn't really covered all that much on a lot of those platforms. So these are things that I think are going to change over time. But what we've seen is they're changing first on digital media platforms, social media specifically. There's a report from Wasserman that came out last year, and it says that women's sports now command about 15% of all media coverage. Now, the actual number on linear platforms is around 5 or 6% of media coverage. But a lot of this, again, is being driven by social media. But my guess is that linear television will eventually be forced to catch up. And we're already seeing this to a degree. The women's rights package have gone up a lot since the basketball 
redid their rights deal with the NCAA last week. But also, Fox, they're getting record ratings for Caitlin Clark games. The national championship game last year was huge. That package, and that is part of the reason why that package increased so much in volume. And I think that this trend is worth following, not only from an investment perspective, but also a fan perspective. Because everyone's going to say, I'm already seeing it on social media, and I've heard people tell me this directly. They say, Caitlin Clark, she has a year of eligibility left, but she's probably going to go to the WNBA after this season. She's accomplished everything you could imagine at the collegiate level. And the Indiana Fever, that is only an hour flight away from her home in Iowa City, they have the first pick in the draft, so she'll probably get drafted there. She'll be close to home. Her current boyfriend, who's a former Iowa basketball player, Connor McCaffrey, also works for the Indiana Pacers, so that seems to be setting up nicely, right? She's broken all the records. She's going to get drafted to a, to a team that is close to her home and a city that her boyfriend also lives in. She's probably going to go pro, if I had to imagine, despite losing a little bit of attention because, quite frankly, college basketball on the women's side is, is more popular than the WNBA today. But I don't really think any of that matters. I mean, she has left an unerasable mark on women's college basketball over the last few years. What she's done is absolutely unbelievable for the sport, and the numbers speak to it. I'm not just making this up. Again, I'm not exaggerating. All you have to do is look at the data. I try to prepare you guys as much as I can by giving a little bit of opinionated uh, analysis on things, but facing it and, and basing it in facts. And I think that's really what's important here is the data is telling you that not only has Caitlin Clark brought a ton of attention and a ton of return and money to these sports and these programs, but women's sports in general are more popular because of it. And I think this is something that people are catching on to a little bit, but need to be catching on to more because this is going to fundamentally shape everything about the sports business over the next decade plus. It's going to reallocate media dollars. It's going to reallocate sponsorships. It's going to reallocate everything from private equity funds to everything in between. And it's something that I've been paying attention to that, again, investors that I talk to in the sports space, owners that I talk to in the sports space, they've all been watching for a number of years now, and many of them are diving in. You've seen this with record numbers with the NWSL this past year. They had over a million fans attend games. Valuations are going up in these leagues as well. And the new teams that are coming in are paying much higher fees too. This is something that everyone should be watching. And as always, you guys know, I'll keep you guys updated as new things come in. But I promise one thing, it's always going to be rooted in facts. I have not always believed that women's sports, not all of them, deserve the same attention as men's sports. Some of them aren't nearly as entertaining. But what I will say is women's college basketball has been fantastic. And it's proving that the ratings are there, the viewership is there, and the media coverage is going to be following it shortly. All right, the next thing I want to talk about is the college football playoff. So you guys saw the deal come in this past week. Andrew Marchand at The Athletic reported that uh, ESPN is willing to pay, has an offer on the table with the college football playoff. It's a six-year extension to their current deal, which would end anything 2026, for six years, $7.8 billion, or roughly $1.3 billion per year. Now, the reason why this is so interesting is because the estimates for this deal have been all over the place. I've seen reports at $2.2 billion a year. I've seen uh, less than that. But what you need to know is that the current deal pays out about $600 million per year to the college football playoff exclusively on ESPN. Now, that's the semifinals and the finals. But this new deal is going to include 11 games per year, and it's going to be valued at $1.3 billion per year. So a little bit more than double what they're currently getting for the expanded 12-team playoff that's going to be starting next year. Now, some of the details still need to be figured out. It's being reported that ESPN could take this offer off the table if the college football playoff is not able to figure their stuff out. Now, they still need to vote on the total structure, how the finances are going to be distributed and everything else. But my guess is that they're probably going to figure that out over the coming months when all of the, the commissioners and Jack Swarback from Notre Dame get together. But what I would say about this is a couple of things. 
One, it proves that college football is more popular today than it's ever been before. Everyone wants to talk about NIL and the transfer portal. And here's what I'll say on that. If you look at NIL and the transfer portal individually, if you're able to separate them, each of these things, I would argue, are good on their own. Think about NIL. The ability for college football players to get paid for their name, image, and likeness is a good thing. This is something that we have been trying to do for decades, right? This is something that everyone knew was wrong, and it finally has been passed, and now athletes are going and able to earn on NIL. Now, that's not to say that all NIL is perfect. Obviously, the majority of this is coming from collectives that are paying players to go to specific schools. But NIL at face value is a good thing. The transfer portal is also a good thing. And I think the transfer portal has proven to be a good thing because it's changed the life and the trajectory of a lot of players throughout college football. What it does is it allows you to move from a situation that may not be as good for you to a better situation. It allows you to go to a better team that's a better fit or a team maybe where you'll be able to get more playing time. Or in some cases, you're able to just move closer to home. Sometimes there's a family emergency, there's an illness in the family or things like that. So there's so many different scenarios that it covers. And again, at face value, it's a good thing. My whole situation with this is that it becomes a problem when you combine the two, right? So if you think about the transfer portal, the ability to move from school to school to school and all these extra years of eligibility, what it allows teams to do is poach players from different programs with NIL packages, right? So you could not even be in the transfer portal. Again, not saying this is legal, but it's clearly happened. And a school could call you, a coach could call you, a booster could call you and say, hey, man, if you enter the transfer portal, we're going to give you X number of dollars over at the school. And all of a sudden, the grass looks a little bit greener, right? You're like, hey, I really haven't been getting paid that much here. I had a great year. I could go over to the school. Maybe it's a little bit closer to home. Maybe I'll get more playing time. But it just looks a little bit better, mostly because of the money. And that's really the problem. We have kids going to coaches. The Maryland head coach said it the other day. He, I think he said a backup running back, a third-string running back, asked them for $100,000 in NIL money. We have quarterbacks that are making seven figures annually at the biggest schools. And again, when you combine those two things, it's bad. So that's why most people have said, and you've heard it, that college football is becoming less popular. The allegiance to the school is ruining college football. They're never going to watch it again. What happened to Florida State was disgusting. ESPN has too much control over the college football play. And I'm telling you guys, the data is not showing this. Last year, for example, there were more minutes watched of college football on television last year than any year in history. So quite literally, college football is more popular than ever before. And I think this new deal for the college football playoff explains that better than anything. And I'll break it down for you guys with a couple examples here. The best example I can think of is relative to the NFL. So everyone was up in arms when the NFL uh, sold an exclusive playoff game to Peacock this past year. Peacock paid $110 million for exclusive rights to stream the playoff game between the Chiefs and the Bills. Now, if we want to compare that to the college football playoff deal, there's 11 games. If you want to divide that $1.3 billion annual payment by 11 games, that comes out to about $110 million per game. So the reason why Peacock paid that much money for that game was because the NFL knew that it was going to drastically reduce the reach of that game. They got 23 million viewers for the game, which was absolutely fantastic for streaming. It was the most streamed football game of all time. But that game probably would have got somewhere between 30 to 40 million viewers had it have been on a traditional network. Now, the reason I tell you this is because it speaks to the value of these college football playoff games. The college football playoff is popular, but the final, the national championship gets around 25 million viewers. That pales in comparison, obviously, to the Super Bowl, which just had over 120 million viewers. But it's even about half the size of the AFC championship and the NFC championship, which gets around you know 50 to 55 million viewers. I mean, heck, the AFC divisional round game this year between the Chiefs and the Bills 
had 50 million viewers. That's double the national championship in college football. So I think that this was a major win for the college football playoff in general. The schools obviously are going to make a lot of money for this, but that doesn't mean it was a bad deal for ESPN either. I actually think it was a really good deal for ESPN because if you think about what's happening in the the sports media landscape today, we obviously know that cable's on the decline. We had 100, 110 million households that had cable television in the United States. That's down to about 70 million households today. And what we've seen is they've been trying to transition people to these streaming companies. You have ESPN Plus, you obviously have Netflix, you have Peacock, you have a bunch of others too. And that's not even counting the tech companies. We're talking about Amazon, obviously, Apple, and Netflix. Now, everyone's been saying that these companies, these tech companies, have more money than they know what to do with it. And eventually, they're just going to come in and buy up all of the rights. And that may be true, but it's not happening now. If you think about these companies, they've really poked at the corners at at the media rights. What they've done is they bought Thursday Night Football. They bought an MLB package. They've done smaller deals in and around sports, but they haven't taken a huge bite of the Apple. They're not going after the whole meal. And what I think is going to happen is that it's going to allow these cable companies and these broadcast companies like an ESPN to buy up these rights and try to lock them into a decade long deal like we've seen with the college football playoff. And what that's going to enable them to do is it's going to give them a premium sports right to transition customers, whether it's to streaming or wherever they want to bring customers to. Because what we know is accessibility is really important in sports. Quite frankly, no one has figured out the accessibility standpoint of like, how can I get all of my games in one place without having to switch apps, remember passwords, and pay subscription fees? No one really has figured that out yet in a really good way. So I think that's important, and that's something that's going to have to get figured out. But even more important than accessibility is the type of rights that you own. Football is absolutely, unquestionably king in America. We all know this. If you look at the NFL, it's the biggest sports league in the country. But if you want to go below that, most people would say the NBA or maybe MLB or maybe NHL, or maybe MLS. But all of those, those four leagues right there, the NBA, MLB, NHL, and MLS, all of those leagues are below college football from a pure dollar and cents perspective. College football is absolutely massive in this country, and specifically in the South. And what we've seen with ESPN is that they've started to lock up a bunch of premium rights across college sports specifically. I mentioned earlier in this podcast that they just signed an eight-year, $920 million deal with the NCAA for broadcast rights to more than 40 college sports championships, including Women's March Madness basketball tournament, ESPN has also signed a 10-year deal with the SEC for exclusive football and men's basketball rights. They have a 20-year deal with the ACC that goes all the way back to 2016. They also own 60% of the Big 12's inventory uh, via a recent extension in 2022. And now, of course, like we're talking about, they have added exclusive rights to the college football playoff. I think that this is a home run for ESPN if they're allowed to do it. Part of the thing that was interesting to me was the announcement from Andrew Marchand said that they're able to sub-license some of these games if they want to. Now, I'm sure someone like a Fox or a CBS or maybe even an Amazon would be interested in licensing some of these games. I do not think that ESPN is going to license out uh, the big bowl games and the national championship. What's probably more likely to happen is maybe they license out a couple of early round, first round games that are on the college campuses. It allows them to recoup a little bit of the money while still keeping the major inventory that they're paying the big money for. But that's neither here nor there. College football is changing. I think it's actually probably changing for the better, although I would say that it's going to look drastically different if I had to imagine a decade from now. I was on the Paul Feinbaum show yesterday, and Paul asked me a really interesting question. He just asked me what I thought about NIL in general. And my general take on NIL is that, number one, the NCAA really screwed things up by not setting very strict guidelines and rules around NIL to start. They essentially just let all the states regulate it, and it was a free-for-all. And it's became extremely ugly with how this is working. I mean, we have players. C.J. Stroud, a former player at Ohio State, is donating hundreds of thousands of dollars to the NIL collective, specifically, obviously, to pay 
players to play there. Now, do we want to live in a world where former college student athletes are having to pay for now student athletes to play at their alma mater? No, of course not. So what I think is going to happen is if you look 10 years into the future, my guess is that we're probably going to have a more professional model in college sports than we have today. And my main example of this is the NFL. The NFL, anyone you talk to around sports business knows that the NFL is the best business model in sports, hands down. The reason the NFL has the best business model in sports is due to a few things. Number one, all of their media rights deals, which account for $10 billion a year or roughly half of their annual revenue, are done at the national level. Now, they're able to do that because they only have 17 games per team per year versus 162 for a Major League Baseball team or 82 for an NBA team. So the inventory is much lower. But what that allows them to do is sell these massive rights packages to the biggest broadcasters that you can think of. We're talking about CBS, ESPN, NBC, and everyone else in between. Now, the other thing that comes off of that is that they don't have to deal with the regional sports networks, which have been an absolute disaster over the last few years. And that's not going to be getting better anytime soon. So the media rights are extremely lucrative in the NFL and it makes it a great business model. But also there's parity across the league. Roughly half the teams make the playoffs. They have a draft that goes in reverse order to make sure teams are getting better. And players all are paid under a salary cap that that increases a little bit each year after year after year when the media rights and everything else go up from a revenue perspective. That's the best model in sports hand down. It's part of the reason why the NFL has been so successful over the last few years. Now, the reason why I tell you all of this is because I think we're going to see some of this trickle down to college football. We've already seen the two biggest leagues, the SEC and the Big Ten, have started to get a little bit cozier with each other over the last few months. They've already said that a lot of the NIL stuff that NCAA president Charlie Baker is trying to do in Washington, I mean, this guy has spent so much time in Washington. What he's really trying to do is he's trying to pass a federal NIL bill that regulates all of college sports. I don't think that's going to happen. I think Congress has many other things to worry about, and that's far, far, far down the docket. And other schools and, and universities have already said that they're just going to follow what happens at a state level. So what I think is going to happen is that eventually we're going to see a somewhat closed system where, I don't know if it's the top 30 or 40 teams or whatever it is, end up in a league together. And it looks like a professional model. There's separation of the NIL, which is legitimate NIL. We're talking about commercials with Gatorade and State Farm and AT&T and everyone else like that. Legitimate name, image, and likeness profiting. That's one part of it. They're going to strip out a lot of the collective stuff, and they're going to say each school is going to have a salary cap. And maybe it's a smaller salary cap to start, or maybe it gets a little bit bigger over time. But ultimately, what they're going to say is that you guys can fund the salary cap however you want. Maybe you fund the salary cap through your collectives. Maybe you fund it with the profits that you're making off the football team in general. But we're going to have a salary cap in place where you can't go out and you can't pay players a ridiculous sum of money. And the reason they're going to do that is because it's going to create a professional model that sustains the success of college football over time. Now, some fans aren't going to like this. They're going to say that they would rather just watch the NFL then because these are the best athletes in the world. They're the best football players. It's a collection of them. And if you want to watch athletes get paid from their employer, why not just watch the NFL? And maybe that's true. But I still think that the college football audience is going to be massive because you have this built-in fandom throughout the different schools across the SEC, the Big Ten, and a bunch of other conferences too. So maybe that takes 10 years. I don't know. But I think at some point, one way or another, we're going to head towards a model that feels much more professional than it feels today. The NCAA royally screwed this up. They let it be a free-for-all, and that was a huge mistake. And quite frankly, it was their biggest mistake because outside of March Madness, the NCAA really doesn't do anything. They're essentially an event management company. And if the NCAA was to lose that by these conferences going to set up their own business models and their own tournaments, that would be a huge hit to them. And it would, be a, it would essentially make the organization worthless. So this is something to watch over the coming years. The NCAA has made a lot of mistakes. 
The conferences are, are fed up with it. And what they want to do is they want to create a more sustainable business model for the future. And in my mind, that looks a lot more professional than it does today. The NFL is most likely going to be a guiding light for that. Everything that they've done, Roger Goodell has done, and the owners have done from a media rights perspective, growing the game organically, viewership extending every single year with the Super Bowl. I mean, CBS for the Super Bowl, they just made $700 million in ad revenue in one day. That's absolutely insane. And college football may not be there today, but there is no reason why they couldn't get close to that in the future with the tournament that they're building out. It may expand in the future. But again, this all draws back to creating a system where the players and the fans aren't exhausted. And the coaches, we've seen coaches move from head coaching jobs to assistant coaching jobs at other schools because they're tired. We've seen coaches move from head coaching jobs in college to assistant coaching jobs in the NFL because they don't want to have to deal with that. They used to be able to sign a player and that player would be there and they weren't able to transfer immediately. So they knew that player was done being recruited. They obviously wanted them to have a good relationship. They wanted them to play for the school and enjoy it. But at the end of the day, now they have to recruit players 24 seven. When you recruit that player, it's not over. It has to continue until that player leaves and is done with your program. And I think a lot of college coaches are exhausted by that. The easiest way to put NIL is that it's been tremendous for players. The players are making money. They're getting paid for the first time in history. That's awesome. But for virtually everyone else across college football, we're talking about fans. We're talking about coaches, administrators, TV networks, and everything else in between. It hasn't really been that great. So I think what we're going to see is a shift backwards where a lot of those parties start to see some of the things that they want to happen. They obviously hold the power, the media rights drive everything in every sport, but specifically college football, given they're so big. And that's where we're going to see a little bit more professionalism put into this game. I'll keep you guys updated on this as well as things progress. College football is an ever-changing landscape. And lastly, if you guys want to go hear the interview that I did with Paul Feinbaum, I tweeted it out on my feed so you guys can go watch the full 12-minute segment there. I had a great time with Paul. He's awesome. We did it in person, so there was a lot of good chemistry there as well. Other than that, I hope everyone has a great weekend, and we'll talk early next week.